You're listening to Rosie on the House. Come on around back, Arizona. It's 8 o'clock and we're putting our hands deep in the soil. It's getting close to time for fall planting. Talk about some soil prep and also some highlights from the Shade Conference that was yesterday at the desert. Was it JW Marriott? Was that what the name of the... Right, Desert Ridge mm-hmm. Resort. Yep. And Shade Conference is put on by the Arizona Nursery Association and stands for, let's see, Southwest Horticultural Something Day of Education. <laughs> Annual Day of Education. There, there it is. <laughs> and they bring guest speakers. There was a guy in from uh, Dallas with a new smart irrigation timer. There's a company based out of Florida with a different type of irrigation underground drip emitter that uh, seemed pretty interesting. I mean, they, they bring in some really good guests. Eisenhower was there talking about sustainable pruning. And, and the premise of all of that, uh, most of it anyway, besides just being general education, is that um, – Landscape, turf care, uh, you know, people licensed that have professional licenses can go get their continuing education credits uh, at this conference and actually get quite a few of them as there's different tracts that they can attend, whether it's a design, you know, a, a whole track and a series of classes on landscape design or water management or uh, maintenance or pruning, uh, pest control, that sort of thing. So, um, it's it's become a big event, over 500 attendees that come every year and get their CEUs. And then there's a trade show that is in the main uh, hall uh, where they, they serve lunch and then and refreshments. But then, you know, so vendors that are associated with industry, Sanderson Ford was there. Nice uh, big 550 flatbed dump. Big dump truck. Yeah, that was quite the star of the show, I think. <laughs> Uh, and uh, Empire Southwest, Caterpillar guys were there. Um, and, you know, as well as, you know, most of our local growers, nurseries, uh, rainbird sprinklers, you know, the, the irrigation ewing folks. And, and uh, so, yeah, it's, you know, there's well representation of the, of the horticulture industry there for these folks to see what's new and, and, and uh, out there. We were there with a the booth with uh, the Farm's Choice Fertilizer. On the education side of thing in the seminars, two of the four main topics were directly tied to water. One was uh, design for rain, and the other was water management. And the other two indirectly were related to water pest management. The amount of moisture you have could relate to the amount of pests and uh, tree health. I mean, every tree needs water, but it's it's a very interesting topic, and we've spent a lot of time doing uh, water research, just about the Colorado water system and the CAP and uh, the Salt River Project and how those are managed, and we're putting them all together for a big water month coming up here in October. Hmm. Uh, but some of the new there, – there's plenty of acronyms. <laughs> and Oh, uh, government's <laughs> great at that. Well, and even in the – even in the uh, – like a GI, Green Infrastructure, was a key acronym yesterday as well as LID, L-I-D, Low Impact Development. <laughs> there was two, two new key – uh, topics that I, I I don't I can't remember if it's the last two years I've missed shade for scheduling conflicts, but those were the first times I've ever seen any of those printed somewhere. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's it's hard to keep track of uh, of all of those people. I, I'm often in meetings and they'll be thrown around. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's that? What is that? What are you talking about? <clears throat> or like EV. Uh, 
evapotransportation was a big key word. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of like timeout. You know, I'm not up on the lingo. Explain that one to me. But it is interesting just how technical they're getting in the delivery of water to the plant and what type of plant they're watering and the different types of uh, apps that you can well, manage from on your phone. It is, and, and it's it's kind of an untold <clears throat> um, it's it's almost a secret to the rest of the world. So, you know, I was at a conference in Yuma uh, last year, and, and, you know, this was in the middle of the DCP, the Drought <laughs> Contingency Plan, uh, and the folks in, <clears throat> in Yuma were a little bit up in arms about the fact that these cities, who are also vying for their share of water, weren't doing more to conserve water. And I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <clears throat> you're, you're, you're uninformed because here's what they are doing. And then there's things like that that, I, you know, you don't even mention the technology that, you know, the deliverers of water, the infrastructure, the, the, the irrigation systems. Jerry Colangelo <clears throat> said me. one time the opportunities in adversity, and there's going to be plenty of opportunities for new inventions of water saving and water smart management technology. And uh, it, it's, it's fun to see all yeah. the different things that come to market. Necessity is the mother of invention, right? So when we live in a state that's really in, a, in kind of a drought all the time, and Arizona is, is a long ways ahead of a lot of other states in the delivery of water. And people ask me all the time, well, how are you guys dealing with that? And I said, the same way we've been dealing with it since they built Roosevelt Dam in 1912. We learned to store water and how to deliver water and and uh, use water responsibly. And certainly there's lots of room for improvement, but the one thing that Arizona has had to do because of necessity and the scarcity of water is how to how to take care of that resource. And if you'd like to join the conversation at one 767 4348 that's one 888 rosie for you Text questions to 411923. And you can email info at rosieonthehouse.com if you'd like to ask your landscape or gardening question. We'll have a few other highlights and different uh, specific products <coughs> that we, uh, we were studying at Shade yesterday. But we're coming into uh, fall planting season. We've got... It, it's one of your favorite times. Spring, we can have great gardens, but I know you've said multiple times that you prefer the fall planting season, maybe just more than anything, enjoying the weather cooling off. <laughs> yeah, I, I liken fall to probably to what spring is like when, when you've been sitting with snow and cold weather and dreary conditions around you uh, in in places back east in the upper Midwest. I think our our fall here is very much like that. We've been, you know, in an adverse situation with weather. It's been hot. We've kind of the same thing. You're cooped up. You can't really do as much outside. You can't enjoy it as much, although certainly you can do more when it's hot than when it's freezing cold. <laughs> but um, So you have this change of season, this, you know, this pent-up cabin fever of, God, my yard looks terrible. I need to get out there and do something. And then the weather breaks and you can't. Plus the fact that going into fall and winter, you know you're going into spring is kind of like bittersweet, right? The weather is fabulous, but well, you, you know, know. <laughs> just what's just around the corner. <laughs> Here comes the heat. <laughs> so uh, I, I really like fall. And it's like I said, and, and you know, I think geraniums are my favorite uh, plant and flower of all time. And I think that's because they just signify that summer's over, fall, it's time. Here come the geraniums. Let's get going with this beautiful landscape. 
And vegetable gardening, what are we planting? So we should be getting ready to. I don't know that I would advocate doing anything <laughs> yet, but it's, you know, the nice thing is it's a long season, too. It's not like spring where, man, you've got a window. You better get it in, or if it's not in in time, it's going to get hot, and that crop isn't going to make. Our winter crops, which are, you know, really the root crops, the leafy crops, the the stemmy crops, so, you know, things like carrots and radishes and beets and turnips and lettuce and spinach and all those leafy things and root things, it's not a, you know, you got to get it in. It's, you've got a long season. In fact, one of the things I really advocate is that people do multiple plantings so that you don't have all of your carrots ready at one time. You have a few here, and then a couple weeks later you've got some and so forth and so on. So you can be harvesting these cool season vegetables for months on end. Um, so that, that's what we're getting ready. And, and you in the same token, you're not in a big hurry, so take your time. It's hot. You don't want to get out there and kill yourself all in one day. You know, start by maybe removing and getting rid of all of that spring and summer stuff that's looking pretty shabby, and you're just wasting water, watering it anyway. So let's pull it out. Let's get the soil turned. Let's get some good compost and start prepping the soil and maybe a little fertilizer and gypsum and maybe take a couple of weekends and do a really good thorough job instead of being in a hurry and rushing it. And then by the time we've got that done, you know, maybe mid-September when the nights finally start to cool off and things are starting to get a little more favorable, then you start easing into the planting of, of the crops that we just mentioned. And I like your tip there on spreading out your planting so your harvest is spread out as well. It's uh, vegetable and ground gardening is a little different than a uh, or, or orange tree where it'll stay ripe on there for months. <laughs> right. So, you know, I mean, when, when, uh, when you've got lettuce that's getting, you don't want it to bolt and, and, uh, and go to seed on you. And you, you know, you can only eat so much lettuce, depending on how many people are in your family, obviously. So if you've got a little bit of this and a little bit of that this week and next week, and then a couple weeks later, you got, you know, you, you can, you know, kind of, uh, dole it out a little at a time and, and uh, have it for, and you can have these crops coming right clear till hot weather. So till, you know, April or May, even a lot of it. Wow. And what types of lettuce grow good here? Uh, iceberg uh, isn't one that really. Well, we grow a lot of iceberg in Yuma commercially. Can so, we? Okay. Oh yeah, you can, you can. I, you know, it's not my favorite lettuce. If I'm going to grow lettuce, I'm going to grow things like romaine and, and grow more of the spring mix type leafy greens personally than, than taking up limited space for iceberg. It's pretty inexpensive to go buy. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I kind of look at gardening as, you know, I'm going to grow stuff that, number one, is, is relatively easy to grow. I don't want to have to fight this thing and babysit this thing to grow real exotic, hard-to-grow stuff. That's, that's fine if that's what you want to do. Number two... You know, what, how much space does it take? Do, you know, I've got a limited, I've got a finite amount of space. Let's take corn, for instance. Wrong, wrong season necessarily, but I think, I think unless you've got a ton of room, it's the ab, everybody wants to grow corn. It's the absolute last thing I would put in my garden. <laughs> you know, you can, buy even, you can buy fresh corn, you know, through the summer months in Arizona all over the place. Rosie just corn- came back from the White Mountains and stopped in oh. Heber, picked up some roadside corn out of Taylor. Out of Taylor. For Taylor, what, 20 Taylor cents a year or and something? And Sholo corn's coming on right now. Yeah, you bet. And it's awesome. Yeah. She was just on the side of the road 
pickup truck full to the top of the bed. Probably several thousand dollars worth of cord. There you go. And I mean, she had a line. I mean, people, oh, she, sure. she couldn't take the money fast enough. Yeah, it's a big deal. It was delicious. I made yeah. some, the best mock shoe I've ever made. Now you're talking. Big deal. It, was, it was delicious. But it takes up a lot of space. It's relatively inexpensive to buy. You know, it takes a lot of water. So I kind of look at my garden that way. Well, not quite. <laughs> Jay Harper's with us this morning. Jay, I've got a question for you. I was sure. visiting with my sister, Rita, who lives in Central Florida, and they were telling me about a big problem they have with citrus called greening. And I had never heard of it before, but she describes it as the fruit looks good on the outside, but once you cut it, it's dry, and you might get a drop of juice on the inside. What Have you have you heard of that term before? Well, citrus greening disease has been around a while, and, and, of course, Arizona has a big citrus industry. And so they're very aware of that, very much on top of monitoring the situation and trying to keep that disease out of Arizona. Arizona does not have the disease. Uh, it's it's vectored or carried by a psyllid called Asian citrus psyllid. Um, and so we're, you know, they set up, they have traps all over the state of Arizona where they trap this pest. They, they check trucks coming in from other states. And uh, our Department of Agriculture does a great job at, uh, at really watching and, and cracking down on that stuff. And they've made growers, particularly the growers of citrus trees that are coming into the, to be planted in the landscape. Um, uh, follow a lot of pretty tough to follow protocols like putting up big mesh uh, houses that their trees have to be in so that this psyllid can't get to them and, and different things. So it's caused a lot of uproar and ruckus and heartache and expense and everything else. But uh, yeah, it's it's been a big deal for a number of years now. And unfortunately, Florida, it it's... Uh, it's pretty prevalent there. Do we have a, a situation where that could be a problem in Arizona? Uh, mm-hmm. It's hard to say. It's kind of all around us. That we, you know, it, one of the thoughts is maybe because of our our lack of humidity and and high heat that that's kept it from being an issue here. They're not sure. They have found some of these psyllids, but they have not yet ever found the disease anywhere. So, knock on wood. We'll hope that's the case. <laughs> well, if the problem becomes. In the, in the exportation of your crop to out of the country and to other states, if you then have that, you have a very hard time if you can even sell it at all. So, Well, hopefully that doesn't hit the town. Like you said, they've got traps everywhere, and they are monitoring close for it. One of the themes you, we saw at Shade yesterday as well is uh, a big focus on going back to native plants. You can go down... Uh, you know, in any of the major towns throughout Arizona, you see a lot of trees throughout that aren't native. And uh, e- even when we're talking about uh, ash, Arizona ash trees that are native, and the guy's like, yeah, they are native to Arizona. And Payson, <laughs> it's not a desert native. You know, we've got well, so many different there. climates in Arizona <laughs> right. planting native to your actual elevation. <laughs> native or, or arid adapted. So the... the uh one of the presenters at lunchtime, Greg Starr, with Ron Gass, went to Mexico over the years and have brought back a lot of plants that they found in very arid, maybe even more arid deserts than than ours that they have developed and and brought in. So, I mean, if you look at 
native, if you want, in the in this in this this part of the Sonoran Desert, there's not much of a palate. It's there's there's not very many, not much variety. So we have to reach out to other deserts and other you know low water uh, biological communities and bring those things in because they're a good marriage and they'll do some of them and most of them will do very well here. But that's another technology really is that we've used to help, you know, cut down on the consumption of water. We've shrunk our turf spaces and we're using low water plants and high technological irrigation delivery devices. And, you know, it's all working together. There's still a long way to go. I still have an HOA in my neighborhood that still got water running down the gutter and I can't get the city of Phoenix to do anything about it. Maybe somebody's listening. <laughs> but it's, it's not only a, a waste of water, it's a nuisance with water running down the middle of the street every couple of days and then it dumps into a park and then we've got mosquitoes. And so it's uh, there's some there's a ways to go in some situations. But And you'd mentioned going to Mexico for plants. Australia has a pretty high number of plants yep. that have been transported over to Arizona. And again, you know, though, Australia has a lot of different climatic zones, just like we do here in the, in the United States and in the state of Arizona. So just because it's an Australian plant doesn't mean, you know, it's adapted for here. And just because it's an Arizona native plant doesn't mean it's adapted for here. So, you know, you've, you've got to really watch. Like I said, ash and sycamore are native to here, but they're native to stream beds. <laughs> where they're in a place where they've got lots of water. Even if it's not a running stream, the aquifer well, it, underground. Yeah, or it runs most enough. much of the year or, or every few years there's lots of water there, that type of thing, yeah. one 767 That's one 888 for you if you'd like to join the conversation. Text 411923 or you can email info at rosyonthehouse.com. There's a gentleman that has a problem he says is going to solve uh, a lot of our water issue and it's by growing crops that you can grow in seawater and I thought well that's a very interesting concept but when you read the list of plants it's nothing you've ever heard of I don't like seaweed <laughs> and I don't know if that's going to be you a might big... have to learn to like it <laughs> might have to learn <laughs> but we'll have a little more on that as well Sounds good. I like that. Let that roll. Yeah, I don't know that importing seawater and growing crops that grow in salt-based water is going to be a a long-term solution. Like you said, what is that going to do to the soil? Well, let's just grow it where the seawater is then. If the stuff will grow in seawater, let's just grow it where we have the seawater. Why bring well, the seawater? Why take the money and energy and, and cost that it costs to transport the seawater anywhere? Let's just. I his would, thought I, was, I would think it'd be cheaper to just grow it there and ship the plants. But yeah. I, his thought was that it would take agricultural's demand off the CAP off. But like you said, what's that going to do piping that in? I mean, what kind of infrastructure is that going to take? The amount of energy it takes to operate CAP is. Uh, is something we'll be covering in the water month. And one of the uh, sessions I was sitting in 
uh, kind of both of these topics tie in. One was why aren't we doing more desalination? And it's just the cost of energy yeah, <laughs> to desalinate. Does it takes a ton of electricity to do it? And what yeah. does it take to make electricity? A ton of water. <laughs> well, or, yeah, or fossil fuels or whatever. Yeah, it's it's not an easy solution. One uh, one other concept was uh, to prevent evaporation and create more uh, energy with solar panels covering the entire CAP canal in solar panels. Wow. Now, I don't know what that would cost, but that's an interesting thing to it's think a, about. Theory. I saw, was it a few years ago, did you have the thing where they took the some reservoirs and they were putting rubber balls or something in the reservoirs to kind of cover the surface with with uh, mm-hmm. with some some type of little ball or something? So, yeah, I, you know, yeah, using those spaces that are non-productive to kind of give us a double... Uh, advantage might might you know it's again necessity is the mother of invention. It, it somebody will come up with 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 uh, solutions to the to these uh, problems, which are actual opportunities, right? And I've got that gentleman's card with the balls, and he was selling it uh, at the Farm Bureau's annual conference a year or two ago to ranchers as a concept to prevent evaporation, but that the animals could still come in and they learn quickly just how to still you push, can push the ball down. through it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and get their mm-hmm. their water. Yeah, sure. Every every little drop counts in one of the biggest uh you know back back of the mind thing is, you know, we've got to solve this before more regulation hits because you know, that's the last thing anybody wants to happen is, is regulation. So everyone's working to conserve if you, that. If you can not have somebody else tell you how to do it, it's always better. <laughs> and and more sustainable yes. long term. It, it, those forced uh, forced solutions are never they're, they're quick fix solutions. They're never long term. <laughs> yeah, typically it's uh, it's a lot easier if you can take care of it yourself. So. Switching that conversation to a high water using topic, well, <laughs> a lot of lawns are going to be going in here shortly. Yeah, it's uh, you know we're what well, tomorrow's first day of September, and uh, that means that uh, you know we'll be thinking about you know transitioning to winter lawns here shortly. Although I would not be in any big hurry. You will see, you know, some golf courses, some big turf areas here in the next couple of weeks start. Uh, scalping their lawns and you know and those folks have to do that earlier than they would even like if you were to ask them when they would prefer to do it they don't prefer to do it that earlier but the fact it's an economic situation for them that when when October hits they want to be ready to have golfers be able to play and not lose a couple three weeks in October so it so they you know they kind of get out ahead of it and they deal with the problems associated with that you know, as they can, and it's expensive sometimes to deal with those. So uh, for the homeowner, I wouldn't even think about it till the middle of October. Uh, just just kind of carry on. I mean, there's some things you can do uh, that will help your lawn uh, be maybe more apt to go through that process better, uh, you know, by, you know, just making sure you have a good healthy lawn right now, number one. Um, maybe not fertilizing again now. If you're going to plant a winter lawn, I probably wouldn't feed it again. If you're going, if you're not going to plant a winter lawn, I would feed it 
at least one more time. Keep it going as long as you can while it's actively growing. If you're going to do it, don't fertilize it. Maybe actually here for the next couple of weeks, raise your mowing height on your lawn a little bit. Let it get a bit, little bit longer, thicker, lusher, so that when you know it has more ability to store up more carbohydrates in the root system um, before you scalp it and put it to bed. So a couple of things. And then don't, don't do the big dry out the week before you're going to scalp it. You know, maybe a couple of days before, but don't stress it. You're already going to stress it enough by scalping it before it's truly going dormant. Um, so don't stress it anymore. You know, maybe turn the scalping wet grass is not fun. I understand, but you know, it only takes a day or two to dry a lawn out here typically. So just, just don't do that too far ahead of time. And uh, there was a lot of new technologies on irrigation timers. Do you know anything about this new two-wire versus traditional wire? I don't. They, that's something I'm going to be looking into more, but they're talking about it being able to go a six-mile loop on a, on a single irrigation system with this new two-wires. Sounded pretty interesting. Not something that's going to apply to most homeowners, but... Uh, you know, our big water users are a lot of municipalities and freeways and parks, freeways, golf courses. Sure. Uh, but whatever happens commercially, eventually down the line, you see end up in residential as it becomes the new standard. Uh, there's a lot of interchange between, you know, a smart system that was <laughs> the first thing they started talking about was just because you have a smart irrigation timer doesn't mean you have a smart irrigation system. You know, you've still mm -hmm. got to have it, it's not just a, a slap and stick a new timer on it and you've got this great system. Well, and, and people need to, to look at their their sprinkler heads and we need to start seriously considering everybody going to the to the uh, you know the low volume delivery heads, you know the ones that look like little fingers or streams of water that rotate out there because they're not affected by by wind. They put water, only, you know, they're more able to put water only where it should go. You don't get the water spraying out into the sidewalks and into the gutters. So there's, a you know, a lot of things, you know, it's not just the timer. You know, the water then has to go through pipes. Is, are your, is your piping sufficient? Uh, and then are your, your delivery devices, the heads and the emitters and all of those, the right size and do you have the right amount and are they putting water where it needs to go so it all fits it it, it all fits together uh, and it's all got to you know be in a contiguous plan uh, and system for it to really work the way it should and hunter had one of their product lines hydrowise has predictive watering so it communicates to weather services on the internet and what you're you know when you first plug in and it's not going to have a lot of data because it doesn't have any watering history. But as you use it over time, it predicts, okay, if it's this hot on this day, here's how much water we put on it. This one uh, valve in the past and this valve might be on your shrubs. And then this is your valve for the trees. And it helps you predict what your watering is going to be. But that's, that, that's going to change a lot of things if we've got a chronicle history of data. Yeah, it's like your uh, your uh, TV, you know, says, well, you watch this, so you might also <laughs> like this or something like that. So, yeah, it's kind of that that uh, intelligence that's stored up that, yeah, any, any of that's going to help for sure. Now, how deep are we watering? That was a big topic, and I've got a, a 
soil probe I bought recently at Fissure Tools, and this thing's like four feet, uh, mm -hmm. a, a four-foot probe. And there's a couple places. It's funny. Uh, I've got multiple drips around the citrus tree, but you know you can go right on top of where one of the heads, drip heads are, and that thing will sink all the way to the handle. And then you can go in the middle of <laughs> around the right. the drip edge and push it, and it doesn't go at all. <laughs> so you have to have the proper amount of heads so that you're getting water displaced all you know all mm -hmm. around the drip line of the tree. But water does also move horizontally through the through the soil structure if you let it run long enough. So we had your mom just sent us a little picture of a guy with some ash trees that you know he's had a struggle with whether we don't know that he planted them or when he planted them and that sort of thing but you know he's talking about watering them for 35 minutes enough to fill the wells well you look at the wells and they're maybe four inches you know deep around this tree and the problem with that is if you fill that four inch well up with water you know how far does that water and how much of it actually percolates and versus ev evaporates um, my guess is it's only getting down maybe a foot or so. In a, you know, in a large tree like that, we probably need to be three or four feet deep with the water. So we, we've got to put water on really only as about as fast as it can be accepted by the soil. So that's where drip systems come into to play. They put water on very slowly, but you have to then do the math. That head's only putting on a couple of gallons an hour, and it takes... 100 gallons of water to get the water down to where we need it. Well, if you've got one head at two gallons an hour and you want to put 100 gallons of water in there, you know, you've got to run it for two days and an hour. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. So for two you days need, and two hours. So you can then add heads and, and add, you know, maybe you've got five or six or eight or ten heads and spread them out, and that reduces. But it's still hours and not minutes. And then the frequency comes into play, which then we adjust seasonally. So I tell people you really should never adjust the duration of your watering. You should adjust the frequency of your watering because it takes pretty much just as long in December to get water down three or four feet deep as it does in June or July but that doesn't need the frequency at those times of the month. So that's, you know, it's hours, not minutes. Just think that. And, and you know, somebody told me like a little rule of thumb, one, one two, three. So little plants, uh, little ground covers and flowers and annuals and small perennials, the water needs to be about a foot deep. For larger shrubs and hedges and things that are bigger type, type shrubbery, Texas sage and our bigger shrubs, foundation shrubs, maybe two feet deep. And trees, you know, at least three feet deep. So that's... That, One, that, two, three. I like that, that. That little handout, or or you can go online and get it from uh, from AMWA, that water, use it wisely, the, the landscape watering by the numbers, has a great step-by-step -step process that you can go through and find out based on the size of the plant and the type of the plant a guideline. It's not set in stone of how long you need to water to get water to a certain depth and how frequently you need to do that. It's weird being Labor Day weekend and we're still in October. 
I know it's, it's the last day of uh, August. I know it's the last day of August, but it's still. I don't know. If I've ever had a Labor Day weekend that started in in well, August. This, is, this would be ru- almost as early as it can be, right? It's the first Monday in September. Is that how we determine Labor Day? That's right. First Monday. So it could. I guess it could be one day earlier because it could be. It's the second this year instead of the first. So about as early as it can get. And it that triggers one of the staples in Arizona on fertilizing citrus. Correct. Labor Day, Memorial Day, and Valentine's Day. Kind of the easier to remember that way. Doesn't obviously doesn't have to fall exactly like that. But so yeah, time to start also thinking about fertilizing not just citrus but a lot of your landscape plants and trees to try and help them get a little recovery from the hard summer and and feed them early enough that you don't push a lot of growth then into the winter months so that's the that's the rationale behind that and fertilizing citrus uh best practices i've been waiting for rain (laughs) well (laughs) because i I know know, it always works better when it's in the ground. It's, it's wet. nice to be able to do that, and uh, but that isn't always the case. We always want to want to fertilize a, a plant that is not. We never want to fertilize a plant that's stressed for water either. So you want to put your fertilizer on either just right as you're watering or after you've watered, and then water the fertilizer in again. So if if you've gotten a rain recently one technique would be to then just go out and put the fertilizer on after the rain and then water it in because the hopefully the rain you know got your plants sufficiently hydrated to do the pre-watering so that's that's one way to do it too but you know that this summer that's been kind of hard to sequence we haven't had a we had the first really good rain we've had all monsoon the other night at my house, so yeah, I saw that driving into town. I'm like, man, because the night before us, this big storm cell coming in off the top of the mountains, and then on the other side of the White Tank Mountains, you could tell Waddell had a big s- moisture cell coming in, and got to stand there, bone dry in Whitman, watching it all, and you guys soaking up the water. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a pretty good storm, but uh, it's uh, I think it was you know I think I. Up until then, I'd had a half an inch scattered over two or three storms, and we got that much or more in this one rain. So it's it's been a little bleak, but uh, make sure you water first, then put the fertilizer on. And, and that's the one advantage of using an, an organic-type fertilizer or a, a, a slow-release fertilizer is you sometimes you don't have to water it in immediately. You can, you know, maybe if you've got a chance to catch a storm, and it sits there for a few days. But don't let it sit there too long. Make sure it gets watered in good. I've got three bags of fertilizer sitting underneath the porch of my spreader just waiting for that rain. <laughs> I think if it doesn't come within two weeks of September, I'll, I'll go do it manually. When you're watering it in, how long do I have to stand there and, and hose it in? When you say watering it in, I mean, obviously those granules don't break down uh, what, while you're what standing What are you watering there. it down through? Law, grass? Turf or is it dirt or mulch? Mainly or? dirt, mulch, and uh, all the horse manure that we spread out through. Well, the you can probably <laughs> tell by looking at it. You know, I mean, if it's if the if the fertilizer prill or whatever has has disappeared or dissolved, and you've at least gotten it down into the into the soil structure itself, that's that's a good point. But again, you want to get you know the feeder roots of trees are not as deep as you know. We don't need to water fertilizer in three feet deep. 
probably needs to go in the first foot or so of the soil. So it, it probably needs a good soaking, you know, not just sprinkle it in and let it dissolve. It needs to then get an additional. But what you can do is get it dissolved, and then hopefully your irrigation, your drip or whatever, will then take it the rest of the way. So if I had leaf mulch around my tree, do I want to remove that, wet the ground, put the fertilizer in? And no, you just need it... to you just need to water it good enough to let it get dissolved down through the mulch. It, okay, it, it will work. It, it will find its way down through that. Just save me a step. That's an awful lot of work to go do that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recommend it. Now y'all were talking about rain. Um, Jennifer and I were up in the White Mountains for a few days this week, and I want to throw this out to everybody. We were hiking, fifty six degrees, cloud cover, sprinkles. And a lot of people will wait to go up to the White Mountains to see the fall color. This is one of the most brilliant wildflower blooms I've ever seen in the White Mountains. Oh, really? It is absolutely spectacular. So it would be worth a weekend drive to get up to Greer, Eager, Springerville, Alpine, the Escadilla, the Sipe Wilderness area. It is absolutely Yellow, red, purple. I mean, wow. it's absolutely gorgeous. So you ought to find a reason to make a sales call up to Springerville. I Springer guess I'm going to have to do that. <laughs> Go get some corn and see some wildflowers. Yes, I mean, the wildflower bloom is absolutely spectacular. You'll probably find a little stream or a lake to visit while you're there, oh, too. Oh, man. <laughs> get a fly rod handy, yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm thinking. Well, we appreciate you spending your Saturday morning with us here at Rosie on the House in our Outdoor Living Hour. Uh, Fall planting season's coming up. Uh, There's a lot of different manufacturers out there that you can get uh, just your sack compost or your garden potting soil. Uh, Compost versus potting soil. Can you use both of those in the garden? Well, you, you could use potting soil as a soil amendment to be expensive, though. I mean, most potting soils are, are more expensive than a composted product just because of the ingredients that are in them, and they're designed to be a complete soil in a container to plant a plant in as opposed to something you mix with earth uh, to make a garden soil out of. So, yes, but I I think there are more, more economical ways, ways to go. Buy a good, you know, good compost product that's been well composted. 